You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Hey, good morning, family. Good to see all of you here. If you're joining us in the live stream, thanks for tuning in today. Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there, you spiritual moms, surrogate. Yes, you can applaud for moms, okay? That's a... <laughs> but whether you're a bio mom, surrogate mom, spiritual mom, all you moms out there, thank you, and we love you and appreciate you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. If it is your first time with us this morning, we're so glad to have you here. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors, and if it is your first time, we'd love to give you a free gift, a cup or a tumbler or a sippy cup, and that is our gift to you, and you can go grab that at the info desk after the service if it is your first time here. If you'd like information about our church or there's something that you are praying about and that we can stand before God with you about, uh, take that slip in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out. You can put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. All right, let's pray and ask for God's help as we continue this series in Genesis. God, thank you that you are so committed to us, God, that you create us with such value and dignity, but beyond that, God, you give us such a dignified purpose here. And Lord, my prayer for this morning is that you would really help us all, whatever our calling in life is, to connect what happens on Sunday, God, with what's going to happen tomorrow on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. Help us to see that, God, our labor is for you, And that in you, Jesus, our labor is never in vain. Thank you, God. Pray this in your name. Amen. So several years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. And in the course of our conversation, he mentioned one of his friends. And he made a very interesting comment about his friend. Uh, He said, you know, man, so-and-so... He works really hard at his spiritual life. In fact, he works a lot harder at his spiritual life than than I do. I wish I worked that hard at my relationship with God. I really admire him for that. You know, the funny thing about him is he's just not that hard a worker. He works really hard at his spiritual growth, but, you know, at my job, I work a lot harder than he does. And that comment stood out to me because my friend was making this assumption, right, that that it's possible to be really concerned about your spiritual life, you can work hard at that, and yet just not work really hard at work. And, And actually, there's an assumption beneath that assumption. And it's this, that ultimately for Christians, there are two spheres of life. There's this spiritual sphere over here, and there's this secular sphere over here. And and there's a bunch of spiritual activities that I can do that are really important to God, but eventually I have to go back to the secular sphere over here. And one thing in the secular sphere we could say is um, work. Work. You gotta you gotta go to work. In this framework for life, there's there's kind of there's there's two kinds of work, right? There's spiritual stuff over in the spiritual sphere. We call that the work of ministry, ministry work. So that's like um, things you do for Jesus and his kingdom, 
studying the Bible, serving the poor, going to church on Sunday, being involved in ministry programs. That's the Lord's work, right? And then there's work work over here. And that's not the Lord's work. That's just you going to your job. Why do you go there? Because, well, you need money. <laughs> you don't want to starve. So you got the Lord's work. You got work work. And then maybe every once in a while, once in a blue moon, those two spheres intersect. Uh, maybe you use your job, you know, your money from your secular job to fund a ministry. Or maybe you use a skill that you've cultivated at your, your work to, to do something around the church. You fix a broken pipe because you're a construction worker. Or you work on IT for the church because you know about computers. But in any case, those, those two spheres are ultimately separate. You ever thought that way? You ever wondered, why do I spend so much time at work if this isn't the Lord's work? You know, many Christians have made this dichotomy throughout church history. There's been this idea that there is one kind of work that's really the Lord's work, and, and then if you really love Jesus, if you really care about his purposes for the world, then you'll go do the Lord's work. You'll become a pastor. You'll be, go be a missionary. You'll go into full-time ministry. Basically, if you really love the Lord, you'd become me. And and if you can't become me, then your job is to go out into the secular world, right? And you go do work work. Why? Well, to make as much money as you can to give it to me so that I can go do the Lord's work. Now, that has been a dominant paradigm throughout the history of the church, that there's this hierarchy of work. And I would say that paradigm still impacts the way Christians think about work today. Sometimes I hear it in the way people talk about going into ministry. I've heard people ask, you know, when you became a pastor, why? Why'd you do it? And they'll say, you know, I had this job in the marketplace and it was fine. I made a lot of money. But, you know, I wanted to go into ministry because I wanted to see lives changed. Now, that's great. I'm glad you want to see lives changed. But what's the assumption underneath that? <laughs> that if you want to see lives changed, you've got to leave work. It's not going to happen there you got to go become a professional Christian. So the question for the next few weeks is this. Is that God's design for work? Is it that God ultimately gives us this choice that either we can do things that are really important to him or we can go make money? I want to break down that distinction over the next few weeks and talk about redeeming your nine to five or your five to nine or whenever your work hours happen to be. Because it is critical for every disciple of Jesus to understand why in the world they're going to show up for work tomorrow and what it has to do with their relationship with God. I mean, think about the amount of energy and time you are going to give the best years of your life to whatever this is. So you better know why God put you there and what purposes he has. Amen? Otherwise, this is some sort of appendage or add-on to the things God really wants you to do, and that's a bad view of work. So we're diving into this, and thankfully, God is really clear about why we should go to work at the very beginning of the story. 
So we're in this series on Genesis 1 through 11. This is the first chapters of the Bible. And, and we're calling this Let's Start at the Beginning, and here's, here's why. The Bible is not a hodgepodge of moral tales thrown together. It is one single redemptive narrative. It is a story. And if you skip the introduction to the story, you're going to be very confused when you're reading the rest of the story. We need to understand the main characters in the story, the setting for the story, our role in the story, and Genesis 1 through 11 gives us all of that. Now, last week, we started talking about our role in the story, and we looked at our identity, this question, who am I? And we learned that humans are created in the image and likeness of God. And so we spent a lot of time on who we are. This week, I want to look a little more closely at what we do. What's our purpose as image bearers of God? Now, I'm just going to be Captain Obvious here, okay, for the next few, few minutes. Being like God means you imitate God. Does that make sense? That, that if God is the one in whose image we are created, then in some sense what it means to be a human is to act like God acts. And, and so the most obvious question we could ask in going to the creation story is what has God told us about himself and how he acts? Because we're imitators of God, right? We're image bearers of God. Well, what does God say? Remember what he says back in Genesis 2-2? What does the author say? And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, here's the question. We have all these questions about what does it mean for God to rest, and we'll get to that in a minute, because that's kind of a mysterious concept. But, but here's the more obvious question. What was God doing before he rested? Worked. He's a working God. He, he took these raw materials of creation, and he created order out of disorder, and he created life and abundance out of a void. God works. And I think the reason that I can come up with as to why the author would give us an analogy like this of creation where God is working and then resting is to present God as the ideal model for who? Us. Just as God works and then rests, so we are created for work and we image God how? By working like he so being created in the image of God means we are created for work. Let's unpack that because there's two things that we do when we work. You might remember last week I talked about part of our purpose as the human being. There's two things that we rule over creation. That's one thing it means to be God's image bearers. Another thing we do is we represent God as God's image bearers, right? Talked about both those things. Well, that's what work is all about for humans. Work is how we rule with God over the world. Work is how we reflect God in worship. And when you understand the purpose of work, that this is how I cultivate the world in partnership with God, and this is the way God has designed me to worship Him, work isn't so secular anymore. In fact, work becomes really, really spiritual and has everything to do with God's purposes for you. 
So God lays out his purposes for work. We're going to look at ruling and reflecting and how this changes your view of work. So first, work is how we rule the world with God. Let's see what God says here. Genesis 2. The author begins this way. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There's a shift from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are complementary perspectives on the same event, right? Genesis 1 is the satellite view of creation. Now in Genesis 2, we get the zoom-in view of creation and see God's creation of humanity. So Genesis 1 is more poetic. God is painting with a broad brush. But now when we hear the word, these are the generations, now we're moving from a more poetic account into a historical account. That, that term generations is used 10 times in the book of Genesis, and each time it marks a new period in the history of humanity. There's 10 different stages that Genesis works through, and this is stage one of the history of humanity. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Basically, this is what came out of the heavens and the earth. These are the first humans that God formed. They don't have parents. God creates them. That's why they're the generations of the heavens and the earth rather than some earthly descendant. So, this is a, I think, account of real people in a real place, and yet it is a highly symbolic account as well that conveys deep spiritual truths. So, we're zeroing in here. We're learning the origin story of of image bearers and what it means to bear the image. And the first thing we see here is that we are created to work. And that the world actually needs us to work at it. Look at this. The text goes on and says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. There's that word work again. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, the writer here is zeroing in on a particular part of creation. And he's signaling that this place of creation where the man is formed, it's a place within the existing world, but this land, the thing that should strike us about it is that it is a place that is undeveloped. It's a good place, but it's a place that has not been brought to its full potential. That's the image here, right? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet strung up. These are agricultural terms. There was no food being cultivated in this place. And there's two reasons for that. One, God has not yet caused it to rain on this place. The land needs rain. But what's the second reason there's no agriculture, there's no cultivation in this place? What is it? There's no man to work it. Instead, there's this mist coming up from the ground. That's a very hard word to understand. It means something like stream. Uh, Some stream, and you can think about this, From someone living in ancient Mesopotamia, right, often places were watered by a subterranean river. You think of the Nile, there'd be a season of the year, it would flood the land, and then it would recede. That's the image that the writer has in mind here. But these waters, whatever they are, they're not productive, right? The water's just kind of sweeping across the land and nothing happens. Why? 
The land is not cultivated. The land needs to be cultivated. There is something in the land that needs to be brought to fruition, and it's going to take God blessing with rain, and it's going to take man working this land and rendering something productive out of it. Now, think about the parallel here. You remember, initially in the, in the account of creation in Genesis 1-2, we read that the earth was what? Formless and void. Remember that? Formless and void. It was disordered and empty. That's the image. And so what does God do? He brings order and abundance. And now man, the image bearer of God, what has he done? What, what happens to him? He is placed in an area that is without order, that needs to be cultivated, and where life can be brought out of it for the good of other people. Here's the implication here, that the world cannot be brought to its full potential until humans show up. That for the world to become what God wants it to become, he wants a co-creator there who can partner with him and bring out the fullness of his creation. Right? So on the one hand, Man can screw up the world, right? Humans can exploit the world. They can treat the environment horribly. That is true, but we shouldn't get this idea that the world was just great until humans showed up. <laughs> no, humanity is dependent, rather creation is dependent on humanity for it to become what God wanted it to become all along. See, I think of it like this. You know, there's that room in your house that you don't want your kids to go in. We've like literally walled it off. We're just like, you can destroy any room but this one. Just don't, don't sit on this couch. We actually moved the nice couch into that room because it was getting destroyed, right? And, and the idea is this room is already perfect. Don't screw it up. And sometimes I think we can think of creation this way, that God creates a world that it's already perfect. Now humans just don't jump on the couch. Don't screw anything up. Just just, you know, this is why we can't have nice things, right? You just, you got to be very fragile. And, and that's not how God creates the world. The world is good, but the world is innocent. The world is undeveloped, and it takes humans ruling as creators with God to cultivate this world and produce what God wants produced. That's what it means for humans to have dominion over the world, to subdue the world, is to harness what is in the world and bring it to its full potential. And that's why it's so interesting in the biblical story, it doesn't move from a garden at the beginning to a garden at the end. <laughs> it's not just, there was a garden, we screwed it up, then God made another garden. <laughs> no, what is it? The garden in Genesis 1, when we get to the end of the story, there's still a tree there, there's still a river there, it's still garden-like, but it's not a garden, it's a city. It's a city. It has developed. It has become what God ultimately wanted it to become. That's why, fast forward to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it says about this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and listen to this, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now think about that scene. The world has been developed to be what God wanted it to become, 
And every culture of the world is bringing in tribute to the king. Well, what is that tribute? I think it's the very best that that culture has produced in laying it down at the feet of King Jesus in honor to him. Which means that, that God has redeemed and perfected every offering of human culture, the best of it, and it actually comes into the new Jerusalem. The world has been cultivated and redeemed, and yes, God redeemed it, but he also used the things we made, and those things carry on as well. Right? Can you imagine each culture bringing in their very best music and arts and economic theories and tools, right? And then our culture, we lay Twitter at Jesus' feet. And he says, cast it into the fires, right? And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Like not everything's going to get in, right? But there are things that will get in. Which means this, that God wants to involve us in his process of ruling and cultivating and developing the world. And we do that through work. That's the implication here, that we rule the world by working to cultivate it for God's purposes. It's an astonishing thing that we are co-creators with God, isn't it? That, that we have this power as humans to create something beautiful and valuable that was ordinary, right? Like, okay, grain is good. Bread is very good, right? Grapes are good. Wine is better than grapes, right? Uh, sand is fun to put your feet into. Sand is amazing when it makes a fiber optic cable. Isn't that crazy? Well, how did, how did that happen? Well, a human took the, the, the most plentiful, ordinary thing in the world, sand, and he worked, she worked, and it becomes something incredibly valuable that we'll pay lots of money for. Do you see how we're like God in the way that we work? We can create things. Now, we're not exactly like God. We can't create something out of nothing. But we can create something better out of something that already existed. It's this miraculous quality about humans that we're sitting in this very pleasant building right now, just that came up out of the stuff of the world. It's amazing. I mean, there are sounds in nature, and yet at some point, you know, Bach took those and wrote the B minor mass. That is miraculous. I heard a skeptic say, what's the most powerful argument for God's existence? He said, Bach's B minor mass is the most powerful argument for God's existence. Because how could a human just create something out of seemingly nothing, just sounds? So, so here's what this means as you think about your work, no matter what your work is, if it's good work that helps people, your work is necessary for developing this world. It is vitally necessary. And it's necessary just because of the work you're doing itself. This world needs to be cultivated for the good of others. And ultimately, the way we glorify God as human beings is by doing this kind of work. And that brings us to the second point. Work isn't just how we rule, it's actually how we reflect God and glorify Him to the world, which means work is an act 
of worship. Work is worship. So we've looked at what Adam is created for. Let's look at where God puts him because this is incredibly significant. The text says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he planted uh, a put, the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the... Um, the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to, what's that word, work it and keep it. Now, we've got lots of questions about this, don't we? A lot of questions about what is going on with the Garden of Eden. What is the tree of life? What is the tree of the knowledge of evil? What's the good and evil? What's the deal with the river? We'll get there, okay? Not going to answer everything today. But, but the biggest question we ask is this, where is it? <laughs> right? We've got geographical markers here. Where is this? And when I read this passage, that's the first thing I did. I Googled, where is the Garden of Eden? And it took me to that marijuana dispensary over in, in Hayward. That's uh, it's the first thing that showed up. And uh, that is not the Garden of Eden. Um, it's not it. But that's the first question we ask. Where is this? It's clear that Eden is not all of creation. Eden is some region within creation. And then the Garden is a place within this larger region of Eden. So Eden isn't the whole world, it's, it's a part of the world, and there's a garden in the part of Eden, and that's where God puts Adam. Now, I think it's a place. I think it's a real place because the author spends a lot of time giving us geographical markers. The problem is, if you try to trace these out, it is not at all clear <laughs> where this place is, and people have argued about this again and again. It has to do with which way is the water flowing? Where does it part? What exactly does that mean? We know what the Tigris is. We know what the Euphrates is, but we're not really sure what the Gihon or the Pihon are. Havila is somewhere in Arabia. Kush could be Ethiopia. It could be the hills of western Iran. And so you can see it's a little confusing. Where exactly is this place? Some people think it's actually a, a rough description of the boundaries of what would become the promised land because it's similar to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 8. Now, all that to say, if we get hung up on the question of where, and I don't think it's findable anymore, and we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come, but the question of where is actually a side trail because it misses the most important thing in the text and the most important question isn't where is it, but what is it? What is the garden? What is this, and why would God put Adam in it? Now, if we read this description of the garden in light of the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, remember that's one book, if we read it in light of what these first five books are saying, and in light of the whole scriptural narrative, here's what becomes very clear. The garden is a temple. 
The garden is a sanctuary. There are hundreds and hundreds of correspondences between the description of the garden and the description of the temple that God calls Israel to build. There's a gazillion of them. Here's like six, okay? Like God walks with humanity in the garden. We'll see that in Genesis 3. God walks about in the tabernacle, the temple. So this is the place where God and humanity meet. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel describes the land of Eden as a mountain sanctuary. And the temple is described as a mountain, as a sanctuary. A mountain is a meeting place between God and humanity. That's the symbolism of mountains in the Bible. And so in the same way, as the temple is the meeting place of God and man, Eden, the Garden of Eden, is this meeting place between God and man. There's the tree of life in the center of this garden, in the center of the temple. There's a lampstand that is fashioned, I think, after the tree of life. It's fashioned to be a tree. There's a river that runs through and waters this garden. Psalm 36, God's presence in the temple is described as a river. Actually, a river of delights is what it's called, and the Hebrew word Eden means delight. And so, Psalm 36, a river of Eden flows through your temple. And we could go on and on, right? There is much gold in the land of Eden. There's precious stones like onyx. And then you get to the description of the temple, the tabernacle, and it's filled with gold and precious stones. And seriously, I could go on all day, okay? I could preach a 10-part sermon series on correspondences between the garden and the temple. What's the point? This is the place that God has created to meet with humanity. This is it. This is the hot spot of God's presence And so here's the critical role. What do humans do in the temple? They work and they keep. And throughout the Old Testament, these terms to work and to keep, do you know who they're used of? Priests. Priests worked and kept the temple. They served in the temple and they kept the temple. Literally, they guarded the temple. That's what that word means. They protected the sacred space from intruders. In the same way, Adam is put in the garden to work at the garden to cultivate. I think what it means is to extend the boundary of the garden, right? With God to extend his reign and rule and presence so that the garden expands into the surrounding region of the world and then to protect the garden from intruders. And you might say, Jeff, what intruders are there? Well, wait till Genesis 3, then we'll get to the intruder and see who Adam was supposed to protect God's sanctuary from. Now, think about that description. Adam's work is described as the work of a priest. So what do priests do? They lead the people in worshiping God. That's the role of a priest is to teach the people to worship God and to represent God to the people. Do you see the implication of this for work? God sets up humans to work as priests, which means how do we worship God? How do we represent God in the world? Through our work. Through cultivating and ruling the world, that's our act of worship. That is it. So all work, is worship if it's good work done to the glory of God. And so we need to change this perspective. There are not two kinds of work. There's not ministry work over here and money work over here. There's only one kind of work if you're a Christian, and that's work as worship. 
That's it. Whether you're in full-time church work or whether you're out in the world doing non-full-time church work, your work is in offering to God. It's an offering saying, I have done, I have worked my hardest, I have worked with the best attitude and the most joy, and here is my work to your glory, God. That's how you should view your work every day, like Jesus is sitting in the corner office, and he's your boss, and at the end of the day, you punch your time card with him, and he says, how did you do? And what you should say is Colossians 3.23, that everything I did, I did heartily as to you, Jesus, and you alone. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for people. If you have a job, that job exists to glorify God. Yes, by sharing the gospel with your coworkers, sure. Yes, by being a nice person and having integrity and honesty. Yes, go make a bunch of money and be ridiculously generous with it. That's great. But fundamentally, the work itself is to be offered to God in worship. Saying, God, today I did something excellent. I did something beautiful that was to your glory and the good of others. And here is the implication that fundamentally work is about our contribution, not compensation. The reason we work fundamentally is not to make money. I know you like making money. I do too. But work is valuable independent of any dollar amount you put on it because the thing itself you should see as an act and service to God in cultivating his world. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it drives the point home, so let me use it again. You... Imagine we're having a conversation, and you asked me, Jeff, why are you a pastor? Why did you get into ministry? Now, I want you to be honest. What would you think if I said this? You know why I love being a pastor? Tax breaks. I mean, guys, they're great. I can deduct everything. It's awesome. And I mean, talk about job security, right? Who wants to fire the pastor? No, I mean, you have to really screw up to lose this gig, right? And then during the week, you know what else I love about it? I can do whatever I want. It's great. I mean, do any of you know what I do all week? You have no idea. For all you know, this is going to be all I do each week. It's just, you know, show up on Sunday and then leave, right? And, and that's why I'm in it, guys. This, this job has so many perks. Now, if I said that, I hope your first thought is not, you know, wow, I should be a pastor too. This sounds great. No, you'd probably think I should look for a new church. Right? And you'd think that because you'd say, this guy is in it for the money. This guy's in it for the perks. This guy has a utilitarian view of the Lord's work. He is not doing the Lord's work to the glory of God. Well, what if all work is the Lord's work? Then it's just as wrong for you to talk about your job that way it is for me to talk about mine that way. That ultimately, you do what you do because God deserves glory and we work for his glory. And here's the other thing. People actually need our work to benefit. Luther said it best. He said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. 
that when we don't contribute, the rest of the human community is deprived of something they need to flourish. That's why we work. And ultimately, whether we're paid or not, we need to work to flourish as image bearers because we are created to work. See, we cannot worship God apart from contributing something to the good of the world. Work did not come after the fall. It wasn't like Adam and Eve screwed up and God's like, you were laying around naked. That's over. Now you've got to work. Now life's going to be miserable, right? No, that is not it. It's work was always what God designed us to do. And that's why if you don't have something to put your hand to and work at, you won't be happy in life, whether you're getting paid for it or not. I love the way Spurgeon said it. He said, some occupation is necessary to happiness. Lazy people would not enjoy even Eden itself. A perfect man is a working man. Ultimately, lazy people aren't happy people because you're created to work. By, that, by the way, when you're retired, don't stop working. They might not pay you anymore, but do something to contribute, right? I talked to retired people, they were like, I'm busier now than ever before. I'm like, great. That's good. There should be something meaningful you to do because the reality is humans are border collies, okay? That's what we, have you ever seen a border collie? Sheep herding dogs, right? You, you, you put a border collie in, the, in, in your backyard and give it food and love and not much space and they will not be happy. Right, they will destroy, they're just like, I gotta work, I gotta work, I gotta do something, I gotta do something, I gotta do something, right? They, just, they panic if they don't have a task to do. And, and for some of you, you know, if you're lazy, you don't have peace of mind. Sluggards are the most troubled people in the world because they're like, I gotta be doing something. You're right. Yes, you rest, but ultimately, right, six days of work, one day of rest, I think there's something about the proportionality of that that's important for us that the primary energy of our life is dedicated to work of some kind for the glory of God. You see how this reshapes work? That every day when you show up to that office, you are cultivating something. You are organizing something. You are developing something that will develop this world towards God's end, toward the future that God is imagining, and you're doing it to the glory of God. That means all work is spiritual. And how you show up to work on Monday morning, the attitude you have, the energy you have, the focus and effort you put into that thing, it has everything to do with your relationship with Jesus and how he expects you to show up for his glory. I think the troubling thing when we think about work is, is this, that because we live in a broken, fallen world, we think, does anything I do matter? It just seems like I work so hard at my job, but my culture of my work is still a mess, right? It doesn't seem like I, I'm just, the, the good I'm trying to do, I, I can't see how it's making any meaningful impact in the world and pushing things towards God's future. It just seems like things fall apart. The, the beauty of the biblical story is this, though, that that because Jesus died and raised to redeem all of creation, all of creation, 
What it means is what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, be steadfast, abounding, immovable, always abounding in the labor of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That because Jesus died to redeem this world, when we work for his glory, family, I don't know how exactly this works, but that he takes those efforts that we invest in and he makes a return on them and they actually echo into eternity. The good work well done for the glory of God, God uses that and enfolds it into the city that is coming and the city we will live in forever. Is there a greater motivation to work than that? If you don't work for Jesus, all your monuments crumble. All your achievements fall. Everything that you do is forgotten, but in Him, your labor is not in vain. But ultimately, to view work that way, it starts with us not trusting in our own work. We'll talk about that next week. But trusting in His work on our behalf. That ultimately, we can't work to make ourselves right with God, but Jesus did what was necessary to bring us into his family, and that in him our work is not in vain. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, that you have not left us purposeless on this earth, that, that ultimately, God, this earth needs us on it to develop it, to cultivate it for the good of others and your glory. God, I pray it would change the way we, we, we show up at work tomorrow morning, Lord, or show up at work later today, or show up at work tonight, God but that we would be checking in with you, Jesus, in that corner office, and that we'd be laboring in you. Thank you that our labor in you is never in vain. We praise you in your name. Amen.